So beginnings are important. How we start something can set the tone for how it will continue. It, it defines the path that you go down on. It sets up the expectations. It defines what success will look like. Uh, beginnings are important. Starting well is important. It establishes your reputation. It sets you off on the right foot. In business, they talk about the importance of the first 90 days and, and getting into a business for the first 90 days of establishing uh, what good practices are. Uh, when a president is elected, they talk about the first 100 days of the presidency and how that sets the tone for the entire presidency. When you are running a race, how you start is important because if you start too quickly, you'll wear out too soon. If you start too slow, you'll never catch up. Beginnings are important. The beginning of a song sets the key and the melody and the theme for the entire song. So beginnings are important. We're going to be spending this year looking through the writings of Luke, through the Gospel of Luke and through Acts. And we started that at the beginning of the Christian calendar, which is Advent. We started in the first two chapters of Luke looking at the, the anthems of Advent, the, the songs that were sung in Luke to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We spent those four weeks going through each of those. You, you see the, the banners around the room that still provide a background for us in what it is that Luke is telling us about who Jesus is. It's, it's a prologue for the entire Gospel of Luke. And so if you missed any of those through December, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them as a, as a foundational piece for where we're headed over the next uh, several weeks and really uh, throughout this year as we look at the writings of Luke. The first two chapters of Luke are painting this picture of who Jesus is and, and the significance of Jesus based on, on how, he is born, how he is born and what is said about him. Jesus is the significant character. And so the pictures that we get in, in Luke chapter 1 and 2 give us this story. It gives us the story of, of parents that are introduced, of John and Jesus, these two parallel stories that are going on side by side, back and forth, of, of, of parents discovering that they're going to be having a baby and then their reaction to that and then the babies uh, being born. Zachariah and Elizabeth are of priestly lineage, but they are in the country. They are poor. And not only that, that they are old and without child, which is something that would have, been, would have been looked down upon. And so we have Zachariah and Elizabeth, these characters that are, are coming in and are told that they will have a child. This child will be named John. And how they move through that pregnancy with both doubt and with faith. And then you have Mary, who is this young girl who is, who is way too young to be having a child. There's no reference to her family background, but here she is, this unwed mother, pregnant with this child. Gabriel comes to both of them and gives them this incredible news that, that announces these pregnancies of, of extraordinary circumstances. 
Here we have John and Jesus. And in each of these, there is the promise of the work of the Holy Spirit at play here. The Holy Spirit is, is moving through this. And how we see Elizabeth and how we see Mary respond to these announcements showed this incredible faith and confidence in who God is and what God is up to. Oh, that we could have that kind of faith. To see that God is moving in these pregnancies. To see that God is moving in these circumstances. That he's moving within this group of people. Because interwoven throughout this story is this overturning of the power structure. That those who are powerful, Herod, Caesar, they're not the ones who are getting the message. The ones who are getting the message that Jesus has been born, that God has come to be with his people, that message gets sent to this teenage girl. That message gets sent to these shepherds. There's a very clear hierarchy of power, and Caesar is at the very top, but the story completely flips that upside down. The social structure that is established here creates this shadow over all of what Luke tells us about who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And this is an overshadowing that even continues on into Acts. God chooses to speak to the lowly. God chooses to speak to the marginalized. God chooses to speak to the weak. And our main characters in these stories find themselves at the very bottom of this social structure. They are the complete opposite of Caesar. They are nobodies. And through these parallel stories of John and Jesus, we see a, a story of God intervening into the human story, coming and being present with us to bring deliverance, to bring comfort for us, to bring redemption, to bring peace. And so this, these two chapters of Luke give us this backdrop for where we're headed in this new series titled Free. As we look at what it is that Jesus is up to, what is his mission, what has he come to do? And so we're going to spend the next six weeks looking at how Luke describes the mission of Jesus. And for that, we are going to start by looking at Luke chapter 4, if you want to be turning there. Luke chapter 4 gives us this picture of who Jesus is and the mission that he has come to fulfill. Previously in chapter 3, we have this episode where it's the first scene of Jesus as an adult, and he's baptized by John the Baptist. And at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. The Holy Spirit is present on Jesus. And then in four, one, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus is now full of the Spirit through that baptism. He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so he is filled with the Spirit. He is led by the Spirit. And after successfully getting through 40 days of, of fasting and temptation, he returns to Galilee now in the power of the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit, he's led by the Spirit, and now he starts his ministry in the power of the Spirit. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And this is where Jesus' public ministry launches. This is where it begins. We pick up the story in verse 14. 
Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues. And everyone praised him. All right, this is the introduction to where we're headed here. He is operating in the power of the Spirit. News is spreading around everywhere about him, and they are praising him. It's good news, not bad news. Here is Jesus teaching in the synagogues. And so this is where he launches his ministry. It's in a Galilean synagogue. It's out in the countryside. It is, it's not in the temple. It's not in Jerusalem. He is starting his ministry at the outside and working his way in. Jesus is teaching, and the word about him spreads, and it's a positive word. Everyone is praising him. And so then he heads back to his hometown, verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was the custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled it, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blinds, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled the scroll back up, gave it to the attendants, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So there's a lot in this scene of, of, of what's going on here, and some of it is actually pretty normal. The custom was that, that Jesus would teach in the synagogues, and this was a custom that, that was available to all men in the synagogue. Anybody could get up and read a scripture. Anyone could comment on the scripture. So the fact that he's handed a scroll to read, that's not where the story gets strange. The fact that he sits down is very common. That is the posture of a teacher, to read and then to sit down and then to begin commenting on it. So Jesus reads something that any of the men in the synagogue could have done. He sits down, something that anybody could have done, and then begins to comment on it. Nothing is strange up to this point until he says his very first words of ministry. His words, not a quotation of Scripture, Today, today this is fulfilled, and this is where the story gets strange. Because up to this point, Jesus is just in his hometown church at a hometown church service having a good old Bible study, reading scripture. But here we get to this message, and he says, it has been fulfilled in me. 
Now, for this to be the very first scene of ministry in the Gospel of Luke is significant. Something is being stated here. Luke, the author, is making a statement about who Jesus is, what his ministry consisted of, what the church was to be, and what the response to Jesus will be, as we'll see as we continue to read. But Jesus is a regular attender of the synagogue worship service. He's, he's, he's a regular attender there, and all the males had this opportunity to participate in the way he participates. And so he reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, but he cuts it short. He doesn't read the full passage. And if you're sitting there listening to what he's reading, you would know that he stopped short, not talking about the vengeance and judgment of God, and instead he jumps over into Isaiah 58 to describe the year of the Lord. Now, all of this is foreign to us because we don't memorize Isaiah. But if you look at Isaiah, he is quoting something very specific about the purpose of why he's coming, and then he tags on the year of our Lord, which means the year of Jubilee. Now, they would have known that the year of our Lord, the year of Jubilee, is something that is described in Leviticus chapter 25. And the year of Jubilee is this 50th year where everything is forgiven. All debts are written off. And so Jesus is saying, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor, and the good news to the poor is seen in the healing and the setting uh, setting people free. And it is seen in the year of our Lord, the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor upon them, that they are now being set free, debts are being eliminated. And so if we were to understand this passage very literally, the passage says that Jesus is God's servant. Jesus is God's servant who is going to bring about the reality of God's favor. He's going to bring about the thing that they have been longing for, the thing that they have been hoping for, specifically for the poor and for the oppressed and for the imprisoned. And that Jesus is going to be the one who is ushering in this season of amnesty, this season of forgiveness, this season of liberation. And he is going to restore what should be. It's it's the restoration that is associated with the proclamation of this good news, this year of God's favor, this jubilee. And so this is what Jesus is declaring has come to be fulfilled within him. This is where that synagogue service gets a bit crazy. Because this typical reading of Isaiah is now reinterpreted to be Jesus' fulfillment of this. And so he's talking about making them free, releasing, forgiving He means that there is going to be this wholeness, this this freedom from from the forces and social chains that bind people. They are free to now belong and be accepted into the community that has been rejecting them. And so what caused someone to, to be separate or on the margins of society... They're now free of that, free of those labels, free of that isolation, and they can now fully participate in the community of faith. 
in the community of God. And so he proclaims good news to the poor. And the poor here are not just some economic condition of, of how much money you have in a bank account. It is this, this condition that includes people who are excluded because of who they are, because of their birth, because of, of their race, because of their gender, because of, of who they are. They are excluded. These are the poor. These are the marginalized. These are the ones who are on the outside. It's a very broad view of poor. And it can mean characteristics that cause someone to be excluded or someone on the fringes of society. And so we're going to continue over the next few weeks, continuing to develop this idea of, of what is poverty? Who does Jesus say the poor are? And we're going to be surprised and often uncomfortable about what he's defining as being poor. But then Jesus sits down, which would be typical. He takes this posture for comment. All eyes are on him. And he says this first word of his public ministry today. Today. You have been waiting for this, but today this is fulfilled. Today the age of God's reign is here. Today God's promises are fulfilled. Today God's purposes come to fruition. Today is the day where things change for those who have waited and hoped for freedom. This is the beginning of Jubilee, and we are still in today. It wasn't yesterday. We are still in today. In this year of God's favor, setting the captives Free, bringing good news to the poor. Jesus says that he comes to include those who have been excluded, those who have not been apart. He's overturning the previous measures of status. He's flipping that hierarchy upside down. The powerful are no longer the powerful. The marginalized are no longer the marginalized. All are included. It isn't economic it isn't about your birth. It is anyone being able to freely receive the grace of God. It's anyone who can join the community of Jesus' followers. It's all are welcome. Anyone can participate. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? They've seen him growing up in this place. And they say, isn't this Joseph's son? They're still amazed. It's still positive. Things are still going well. But Jesus can't keep his mouth shut. Jesus keeps going. And Jesus likes to stomp on toes. He says, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did and at Capernaum. So we have here him predicting how they're going to interpret this. They're saying, hey, 
You've been doing all this great stuff for people in other places. This is your hometown. You should be doing this for us too. We should have extra privilege because you're our hometown boy. You should be treating us in a way different from others. There's an expectation that he will come in and and do something for them, give them preferential treatment in some way, which is the exact opposite of what Jesus is talking about. He says, truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. It's rough being in your hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian." So we've got these Old Testament stories here, these stories of Elijah and Elisha, who do nothing for the Jewish people. Everything that they do, the things that they do, are for the outsiders, for the excluded ones, for the Gentiles. And here are two prophets that are held at at very high esteem by the people that are sitting in these pews. And Jesus is using them as illustrations for the good that has been done for the outsider at the exclusion of what was good for the insider. Were there not many with leprosy that were, were within the inner circle? But those were not the ones that they healed. It was the outsider's that were healed. And so now the tune of the environments, the tone of, of how people are receiving him changes just a little bit. In verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious. They're furious when they heard this. How dare you use our esteemed prophets against us? They got up, they drove him out of the town, and took him to the bow of of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They have gone from positive and amazed and singing his praises to ready to throw him off a cliff. This is a significant change in attitude toward Jesus, their hometown boy. They're ready to throw him off a cliff. But miraculously, he walks through the crowd and goes on his way. The people have heard Jesus describe his mission of good news to the poor. That hasn't triggered their fury. That has not triggered their mob mentality. It is not until Jesus says who's included in that list of poor that the mob forms. There is now this mob mentality ready to throw him off a cliff because outsiders are now included. It's not just the poor among us, but it's those Gentiles, those ones who are not like us, the ones who are not part of the included. Jesus is now including everyone 
and they're not happy about it. And they're offended that he would even use their stories, their scriptures, their prophets against them in this. Their response turns to anger, it returns to violence. And they're made to face the truth of these stories of Elijah and Elisha, stories out of their own scriptures with this message of Jesus that they do not like. They have this tradition that they've long defended and long embraced, and now they have to face the truth in Jesus. And the reaction is explosive. The peaceful synagogue that is singing his praise is now a mob throwing him off a cliff. And this is Jesus' start to ministry. Welcome home, Jesus. This is his first scene of ministry, and it foreshadows his last scene of ministry as the mob puts him on trial and crucifies him on a cross. And so Jesus moves through the crowd and goes along his way And he goes somewhere else, not because he is rejected, not because of him. He's rejected because he goes somewhere else. He goes into that place that they would never go before. He goes to the outsider, and it's for that that he is rejected. And so when we think about the mission of Jesus, this mission to proclaim good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to heal the blind, to bring freedom, to free the oppressed, where does that put us? As a predominantly affluent, white group of people, educated, where does that put us? For those who don't fit in that white, educated category, how does that make you feel as you sit here every Sunday with us? Who's included in this assembly? Who is excluded in this assembly, whether explicitly or implicitly? Who do we go to? Who are we willing to go to? Who are we unwilling to go to? And so here are some questions to ponder as you think about this. Who are the outsiders? And as you think about who those outsiders are, what would Jesus' offer of freedom look like for them? It could be somebody with different skin on. It could be someone with different economic background. It could be someone with a different kind of education, someone with a different gender, someone with a different disability. Who is the outsider? Who's at the margins? Who is excluded? And what would it look like for them to receive the freedom that Jesus offers us? 
Maybe you're the one who feels excluded. You feel like the outsider. And I, I grieve that anybody would feel like an outsider. But it's such a reality to the world that we live in. And so take comfort in Jesus' words that he says, Today, the freedom of God is present and available. That all are included, even when humans do not do it well. When we fall short of the exclusion that should be happening, when we fall short of that, God says all are welcome. Anyone can come into this place. Anyone can come to the grace of God. And so forgive us when we don't do that well. Second question. What offends you about the mission of Jesus? Now, that's a weird question. Because the right churchy answer is, nothing offends me about the message of Jesus. The, message of, the mission of Jesus is my mission as his follower, right? But there is something offensive about what he says, even to the point that his friends and family that he grew up with was ready to throw him off a cliff for what he was saying. And so what offends you about the mission of Jesus? And at the risk of offending everybody, let me just push it further. If there is not some sort of dissonance between the mission of Jesus and your political party, you're missing something. If there is not some disconnect, something that makes you sick about the stance of your political candidate of choice and the mission of Jesus, you're misinterpreting one or the other. Either you don't really understand who Jesus is, or you don't understand who that political candidate really is. Because there is no political candidate on any, on any spot in the political spectrum, left or right, that is fully embracing the mission of Jesus. They've all got it wrong. And so if you do not have some sort of angst within you about your political party, you need to reevaluate who Jesus is and what his mission is to this world. And hopefully, whether you're on the left or right of that, because there are some of all in this room, that makes you really uncomfortable. And so will you, jo will you join with the mob and throw Jesus off the cliff? Or will you say, this is the Jesus that I follow. And there are parts of what he says that offend me. There are parts that make me uncomfortable. And there are parts of my life that are completely inconsistent with what he's called me into. But I'm working my best to try to reconcile all that. And it won't be in a political party. It will be in the message of Jesus. And third, as if we didn't have enough already, 
How can your life's mission more reflect the mission of Jesus? My life mission, what, what I get up every morning to do, what I set out to do, who I am and, and the career path that I am and who I am as a father and who I am as a husband, how do all of these things come together to reflect the mission of Jesus and where do I fall woefully short in that? My attitude about the poor, my attitude about the marginalized, my, my attitude about the oppressed and the captive. How is that consistent? Or more likely, how is it inconsistent with what Jesus says he's coming to do? Because Jesus doesn't say anything good about the rich and powerful. He comes in and has a lot to say about his love for the poor and marginalized. Let's be standing together. So hopefully, in all of that, something made you really uncomfortable. Hopefully you're at a place in your faith where you're not ready to throw Jesus off a cliff. But at least you're thinking about what is going on within me what is going on in my lifestyle? What is going on in my mission as a person, a follower of Jesus, that is inconsistent with what Jesus has come to do? The things that I say, the things that I proclaim, the things that I identify with, the things that I celebrate in the world around me, the things that I attack and criticize in the world around me, how are those consistent or inconsistent with the mission of Jesus? Because as disciples of Jesus, we're looking at him as a model, as a teacher, and we're seeking to follow him and to become like him. And so his life purpose, his mission should be our mission. And can we help one another step up and live that mission more fully? Let's spend some time in prayer for one another as we encourage one another to, to embrace the mission of Jesus. There's ways that we embrace this already. This is a church that is very generous. This is a church that, that on Wednesday nights we, we feed the neighborhood, that, that multiple times a year we house the homeless. We go to the prisons. And so this isn't this, this condemning, we don't do anything. And so maybe that's why you're not a mob right now. But there's always ways that we can grow, adjust, and think about how we view the world, the lens in which we see others, the, the way in which we define inside and outside. All of us have room to grow in those areas. So we'll have shepherds down front that you can pray with. You can get together and pray as a small group, as a family, as friends. This is a time for us to encourage one another through prayer. Some of us feel like outsiders. I'd encourage you to go seek prayer with somebody. Help us understand one another. Help us encourage one another as we think about that. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the mission of Jesus, the good news that he comes to proclaim to the poor, to proclaim to those who are on the outside 
God, all of us are outsiders that you have come to rescue. And so God, as we, as we view others, help us to view ourselves the way you have seen us. Broken, captive, poor. And you have set us free. Thank you, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.